0: In front of you, there uh, should be Bibles, um, so you can grab one of those. The book of Hebrews will be near the back. Um, there's actually a table of contents that is actually helpful. Um, and so you can turn to Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible and you like one, we have on the back, in that back corner, we have a whole stack of them. Take one. Uh, we, we would love for you to take that and, and have, uh, for you to have and use. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, and this is the end. We have persevered. Uh, today's the end of our journey, and this is our 30th sermon by my count. We started all the way back in September, um, and now here we are. And honestly, when you come to the end, uh, I really wanted to end this, this uh, long, magnificent sermon series with a memorable closing, with the best sermon yet, but that's, that's really not what we have. Instead, we have a, a pretty typical, normal ending of a letter that was written in the first century. And so we're going to walk through the the last verses. It's really eight verses, um, and we're going to just walk through them. And really what our author is doing, what we'll see is he's tying up the ends, um, the loose ends, and and closing this letter in a a really typical way. And so we'll we'll look at three. There will be three main points that we'll walk through. But let me read the passage first, um, and then I'll pray for us, and then we will just work through the the last section. So uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13 beginning in verse 18, and I'm going to read through uh, verse 25, through the end of the chapter. So Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for this book, this New Testament letter. I thank you for the ways that, that it has shaped me through these months and the many ways it shaped us as a church. And so I pray, as I have throughout this, this whole series, Lord, that your word would shape us, would it encourage us, speak to us, um, and, and help us to treasure and look to Jesus as our only hope. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, there's three points. So, so we're going to see a request there, verses 18 and 19. He makes a request. It's a, it's a prayer request. And uh, then second, we'll see a, a benediction there in verses 20 and 21. He, he closes with this, this well-known benediction. Uh, and then finally, the, the last set of verses, verses 22 through 25, there's this, his final appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, one final word. And so let, let's walk through these verses together. Let's start there with verses 18 and 19 as we see a request So so look there at verse 18 as we begin. What is clear is that there is this relationship between the author and his audience. He's not writing to them as one who doesn't know them. So the Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter to uh, to the Romans, he's never met them before. He's only heard about them. That's not the case here. The author of Hebrews knows his audience. And and it's in light of that relationship. He says, hey, you all pray for me. Pray for us. Me and those that are with me here as I'm ministering, pray for us, verse 18. Which, I mean, just stop and think about what, what a beautiful thing this relationship is. I mean, this is representative of, of Christian relationships. So here you have this, 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 this author who's writing this, this firm exhortation, and, and he's rebuking and challenging this, this audience, his, his readers. But, but regardless of the fact that he is a, an authoritative figure, someone who has taught them, that, that fact notwithstanding, he is not above the need for them to pray for him. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. No one is above the need for prayer. And so the author, though he's rebuked and challenged his readers, in these final words, he says, hey, pray for us. Pray for me. I need your prayers. It's, it's a mark of humility, also, but, but he continues, what, what does he ask them to pray for? Pray for me, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. In other words, he's saying, pray for me because my life and my actions, our, our conduct has been upright. Everything we've done, we've done with a clear conscience. And In fact, he's make it a, made it a point to live an upright and godly life. And he wants them to know, hey, pray for me, and it's not a wasted prayer because we are honoring the Lord in all that we do. We may be facing persecution or, or suffering, but, but we are acting uprightly. We're, we're acting the way that we are called to. He wants them to be assured of his integrity, his clear conscience. I've done everything that I should have done. Which we ought to note is that, that's a really important thing for the Christian leader. Right? There's a connection here between, between gospel ministry and integrity. So, so the person who, who is a gospel minister ought to have an honorable life. The the two are directly related. The righteous life of a minister or the righteous life of an apostle or a pastor or a missionary or just a Christian in general commends the gospel. So so if my life is upright and I'm living as I'm called to live, the gospel is made commendable. The, The alternative is also true. You know it and I know it. When sin or sinful talk or dishonesty or underhanded ways are part of the life of a pastor or a missionary or a Christian, damage is done. Credibility is lost. The reputation of Christ is harmed. The, the gospel is, is reproached. And so he wants them to know, I, I've lived the life before all of these, all of you. I, I've lived an upright life. And so because the stakes are so high, he says, pray for us. Pray for us that that may continue, that my life would not reproach or, or discredit the gospel. And that, that's a great prayer. I would echo that prayer for myself and for Will. Pray for your pastors that our lives don't reproach the gospel. Because if we fall, the gospel is hindered. And so you ought to pray, pray for the uprightness and the, the integrity of your leaders. This is why one of the qualifications that the Apostle Paul would say is, he must be well thought of by outsiders, So pray that our lives, and pray this for your own lives, that it wouldn't detract from the gospel. Pray that the testimony of the leaders and members of of this church would be examples of integrity, not hypocrisy, not gossip and slander. That is not fitting for a Christian. Don't live that way because it's not just your testimony, but it's the testimony of the church and of Christ. So pray that your life would be an example of uprightness, integrity, not sinful or dishonorable. So, So pray that that's how he ends, or or ends this letter, pray for us. But he continues Look there in verse 19, pray for us, not simply for him and those with him, but also I urge you the more earnestly to do this. I mean, I urge you more earnestly to pray in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And so, so again, he wants to be restored to them. He's separated from them and, and he wants to be reunited with them. He, he, the relationship there, he wants it to be, to be rejoined. They were once together, and and he's been separated. We don't know why he's been separated. It's possible he's been imprisoned. It's possible he's on a missionary journey, or maybe he's under some type of house arrest. But the, the reality is he's been separated. He says, pray for us, and pray specifically, earnestly, that I might be restored to you. He wants to be with his people face to face. There's just something about being together. You can't really tell a tone through text message, right? How many of you have misread a text message? Tone. Right, the same was true in the first century. So he's written this letter. He's trying to be as clear as possible, but he he wants to speak to them in in person so they can hear his heart for them. And so he's saying, "Pray that I might be restored. I want to be with you." His his pastoral heart continues up until even the end. He wants to be with them. Well, oh, then he he ends with this benediction. So look there at verses twenty and twenty one. He leads this benediction, this this closing prayer for them. And so he takes these two verses, and and really, this is the benediction. This is his closing prayer for them. But also, in this benediction, he's, he's filling it up with all these themes that were covered throughout the book. So look there, verse 20. He says, Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, right? That's a lot of words, a lot of modifiers, but he lays out this benediction, and there's really only two parts. May God, verse 20... Help you do his will, verse 21. Right, so that's, it. that's his closing benediction. May God help you. May God help you do his will. That's the big picture summary of how he closes. That's his prayer for them. May God help you or equip you to do his will. That's a big picture, but, but he says more about that. Look at verse 20. Not just may God help you. He doesn't say that. He, he fills it out more. So, so may the God of peace. May the God of peace help you. God who has enabled and established Peace, specifically the God who has made peace possible between him and his people, right? This is what the gospel does. The gospel brings peace between God and man because God and man do not naturally have peace. And so God is called the God of peace because he enables and secures peace between God and man. But he also, as the God of peace, gives peace to his people. He gives peace to his people. His people, God's people, can have peace. I mean, Paul would use this phrase regularly in in his closing of letters. In in Romans 16, 13, he says, Paul says, it's the God of peace. May the God of peace, who will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's the God of peace who crushes Satan. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, it's the God of peace who, who, Paul says, may he sanctify you completely. And so God is the God of peace. And it's fitting for Hebrews because, if you remember... The God of peace expects his people to strive for peace among themselves. That was back in chapter 12. And so God's people, if he's the God of peace, God's people ought to be marked by peace. And that ought to be a prayer for, you, for our church body. May, may we be characterized by peace. So he's the God of peace. But, but not just that. Look how he continues. Verse 20. May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus... And, and so the God of peace is the source of the resurrection. We sang about that, the living hope. God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead in this resurrection. This is where he begins reaching back the, the thread that's run through. The resurrection has been crucial in the book of Hebrews. Specifically, his role as, as high priest, as the one who is interceding for his people. And so, so the, the author of Hebrews made the point that, that because he's been raised... Because of his resurrection, he is now alive and has an indestructible life, which means he's never going to die again. And so that's part of why he is the great high priest who will never cease to intercede for his people. So if he's not raised, he can't serve as the high priest forever. But he has been raised, and he will serve as high priest forever. So the resurrection is crucial. So at the end, he's saying the God of peace who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not, that, not just that. Not just the God of peace who raised the Lord Jesus. He also... Raised the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great shepherd of the sheep. There in verse 20 he continues. The one who raised our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of our sheep. Which, if you ever stop and think about it, the Lord Jesus, he's not just the lamb who was slain, though he was. He's also the shepherd of the sheep. So, the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He is the great shepherd, the good shepherd who has freed his people. In fact, this may be a reference to Isaiah chapter 63, where where Moses is referred to as a shepherd who who delivered the Israelites from from Egypt. And he was the shepherd. Well, here the author says, well, well, Jesus, who we know is better than Moses, is the great shepherd. Jesus himself would, would use this same language in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. And why does Jesus say that? Because I, he says, lay down my life for the sheep. And so Jesus died. He was the lamb who was slain, but he freely gave his life as the great shepherd. He laid down his life for his sheep. And it's his death that then this last qualifier here in verse 20, he's the God of peace, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, last qualifier, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Which again, this gets back at a point that's made throughout the book of Hebrews, which is this new covenant, the eternal covenant. And it's been established by the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Good Shepherd who laid down his life. And so the the death and resurrection of Jesus was necessary. It was not a a consequence uh, of, 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 of unfortunate events. He was crucified, buried, and raised. That was necessary, essential, required, because in doing so, a new covenant was established And now that Christ has been raised and is a great high priest, there is a new covenant that is secure and eternal. The blood of the lamb has secured an eternal salvation. The effects of this new covenant will extend forever. And so we see the person and work of Jesus in his death and resurrection. It's inseparable from the God of peace. Do you notice that? The God of peace and the giving of the Son, these things are inseparable. This is the activity of the triune God. The God of peace has established a new covenant through the death of the Son. And this is the God of the Christian faith, the one who made a way through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And so if you're, if you're here with us and, and you don't know the gospel, if you don't know the God of peace, hear me say this morning that, that you can't know the God of peace apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. So you can't separate, you can't know God without coming to him through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here, I just want you to know no matter, no matter your age, no matter how old you are, how young you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your religious history is, no matter how, how bad you think your past is, no matter, no matter how much money you make, no matter what your past relationships are, the reality is that as you're sitting here this morning, you can know the God of peace through faith in Jesus Christ. You can only know Him through Jesus Christ, but you can know Him through Jesus Christ. The the, the blood has been shed. The new covenant has been established. And you can get in on it through faith in Jesus alone. That's all. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to clean yourself up. You come to Jesus who welcomes the weary and the sinner. He receives you as you are. And so that's the good news of the gospel. Peace has been secured and you don't have to do anything but come to the one who has secured that peace. And so friend, there is peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He laid down his life and took it up again to purchase peace so that this morning here in Hampton, Virginia at Fox Road Baptist Church, you could hear the offer of good news. You can know peace this morning. You can have peace with the God who made you through jesus christ this is the god of peace this is what he's done and so remember that the benediction may god and then fills it in with all those things but then he goes on to the second part look there in verse 21 so may god help you do his will so so notice how he continues verse 21 may god equip you with everything good that you may do his will and that's a simple request, right? May God give you everything that you need to do His will. That, that's what He says. That's His prayer. May God give you what you need to do His will. the desire is for His readers to continue in God's will. That, that's a good prayer. Do you want to know what to pray for your kids? Pray that, that God would give them all they need to continue in His will or to do His will. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for your neighbors. Pray. That's a great prayer. And in this context, the, the author of Hebrews he would certainly be confident that his readers had started down the path, right? They had come to Christ, they put their faith in him, they were trusting in him, they, they had weathered some storms, they had persevered, they'd shown love to others. But as, as we've seen in, in the letter so far, it's clear they're at a turning point. They're at a point where they're going to decide, okay, either we're going to hold fast to Christ and persevere, or we're going we're to forsake him and we're just going to fall away. So, so it's, they're, they're at a divide, and the author wants them to be equipped to continue on the path of perseverance. He wants them to, to, to keep holding fast. He wants them to, to hold fast to Jesus, which is God's will for all Christians. Right? If you want to know God's will for your life, it says you hold fast to Jesus. Don't fall away from him. But for them to do that, he says, May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And so notice he doesn't say, Hey, I pray that you might do God's will. That wouldn't be a bad prayer, but that's not what he prays. He says, may God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So, so this isn't a, a, a prayer in, in what, what you might call bootstrap theology. He doesn't say, hey, pick yourselves up and do God's will. Just, just get out there and get to work. That's not what he says. He doesn't say that. and There's an implication by the fact that he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, may God equip you With everything you need to do his will, the end goal is the same, but how you get there is not the same. Those are two divergent paths. It's either, hey, just do it, or hey, may God give you all you need to do it. And so his prayer is a prayer of dependence, which tells us their ability, your ability, my ability to do God's will is 100% dependent upon God equipping us. We might say, if God doesn't equip them with all that they need to do his will, then they're not going to do his will. If God doesn't equip, they don't do it. So it's right, it's fitting for this final benediction to be a call upon God to do what only God can do. Do you see that? God, do what only you can do. In order for his people to persevere, God must equip. God must act. And so it's clear, as one commentator writes, that the readers don't have the internal capacity to fulfill what is written here. They don't have the internal capacity. They don't don't have the strength. And so the author prays for God's power to be unleashed in them. It's a prayer of dependence. And so he says, May God equip you with everything good that you may do His will. But he continues there in verse 21, Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Right? The emphasis remains upon God's activity, God's action. May God equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Working in us. Who's the one working in us? It's God. The, the God who equips you with everything you need is also the God who's going to work in you. What's pleasing in his sight. It, it's, not ro- it's not a robotic formula. This is what it means to live a Christian life. You can't, you don't, if you look at it and say, well, look, God's, we're just big robots because God's the one who's going who's gonna to do everything good and he's going to work in us. That, that's not how Paul understands, how the, the author of Hebrews, how the New Testament understands the Christian life. But he sure seems to say, if you want to do it, God has to enable you. And then God has to work. It is a God, big God view of the Christian life. If we're not careful, if if we lose the God-sized view of progress or doing his will, we will have man-centered views. And man-centered Christian living never ends well. We need to recognize our dependence on God to do what only God can do. The emphasis is on God's activity. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. I mean, it's not unsimilar to what Paul says in Philippians 2, where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so that, that seems to be a heavy emphasis. Do it. But verse 13 of Philippians 2, for, here's why you're to do it, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you hear the God, God-focused view there? That's Philippians two twelve and 13. That's what all they're saying here. May, may God do it. He wants God to work in them that which is pleasing in his sight. That he, he wants God to accomplish his will in their lives. And the request is, finally, that it be done through Jesus Christ, which has been the emphasis of this letter throughout. God has acted and continues to act through jesus christ you don't do god's will apart from doing it through jesus christ you don't come to god you don't know god you have you don't have peace with god apart from through jesus christ so he ends may god do all that he's going to do working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ it's through him and only through him that god works his will which means that a failure to hold fast to christ is a failure to do god's will that's that's his point of the book of hebrews if they're concerned with doing God's will, then they hold fast to Christ because that's God's will for the believer. The reality is that all that we need has come to us through Jesus Christ. You don't need anything more. You don't need to go backwards to an old covenant. You don't need to look forward to a new covenant 2.0. All that we need has come in Jesus Christ. We have a new covenant that's been established and grace and mercy have come to us through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever is how he ends verse 21, which leads, that'd be a great ending, right? He, he could have ended it right there, but he, he adds one final section. Look at there, verses 22 through 25, his final appeal. There, verse 22, I, I appeal to you, brothers, I, I appear to you, brothers and sisters, church family, I appeal to you, bear with my word of exhortation. So in this letter that's been filled with, with warnings and exhortations and, and harsh words, this final appeal is one of gentleness and care. He says, bear with my word of exhortation. But This is his final appeal. Re- receive this message. You're at the end. You've made it to the end. Now, now bear with the message. In fact, this word of exhortation, this phrase, word of exhortation, is actually it's the same exact phrase that's used in Acts chapter 13. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas, they're on their missionary journey, and, and they're in Antioch. And, and they're, they're in the synagogue and the scriptures are read. And then the, the leaders of the synagogue said, Hey, Paul and Barnabas, do you guys have a word of exhortation for the people? If you do, say it. So this, this phrase, word of exhortation, it, it is often associated with, with a spoken message, a sermon. Which is why, if, if you've read background on, on the book of Hebrews, many say, think that this, this, is, to, this is to function like a sermon. A homily, it's a word of exhortation. And so, so that's how the author of Hebrews understands it. It's to function as a sermon. In fact, Will and I talked about, we're, we're not doing it, but we talked about, what, what if the last sermon of the, the series on Hebrews was, I just got up here and I just read Hebrews one, 1 to Hebrews 13.25. I'm not going to do that, so come back next week. But that, that's, that's how it, it would have functioned. And so the author says, bear with my word of exhortation. It's, it's not this theological treatise or, or this theological message in systematic theology, but it's a sermon. It's an urgent word of warning and admonition that is given to the readers. And so it's an exhortation. And so there's exhortations and warnings and encouragement that this genre of, 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 of sermon is, is all mixed up into one. So sermon should, should have all of these things. And so as he closes his message, he knows what he's written has, has been has been hard, difficult maybe for some of them to hear, but he reminds them, bear with it. Remember what I've written. Don't, don't forget it. All that he's told them and urged them to do, don't, don't forget it. Bear with this message. And it's a message which, did you note, know, he says is brief. He says, I, I've written to you briefly, which we may say, Wait a minute. we've, we've we spent 30 weeks of sermons at this letter. Is it really brief? Right, 13 chapters, that's brief, but, but in saying this, he, he's not really saying, well, it's, it's really short. What he's communicating to them is, is, I could have said so much more than I've said. I could have said so much more. In fact, I want to tell you more. Pray that I might come to you soon so, so that we can work out chapter 5, I know that was harder, or chapter 8. Yeah, I know you got questions there. I could say so much more, but I've written briefly. I, I've constrained and limited myself. I've written briefly, and I mean, I only thought, I could only imagine, how much longer could he have gone on? How, how long would, would this have been if he would have said all that he wanted to say? He didn't. He wrote briefly to them. He wants them to know, it, it's brief, I have more to say, but, but I've said what I've said, and what you have is a, a brief word of exhortation, so bear with it. Which then gives us, gets us to verse 23. Find out the author not only has a relationship with his audience, but it also has a relationship with Timothy. It's not explicit here, but but everyone assumes this is the Timothy that, that was a friend of Paul. And so he says, verse twenty three, You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. I mean, it's a fascinating verse because we don't know anything about Timothy's imprisonment. No in the book of Acts, in, uh, nowhere else in the New Testament does it talk about Timothy being in prison. But when he says he's been released, we can only assume he was imprisoned for some reason. And so he's been released. And the author of Hebrews says, hey, I, if he comes soon, then, then we're both going to come see you and you're going to see me and our brother Timothy. Right? This is letting them know, hey, we're coming to see you. And Timothy's released and I'm going to be. Maybe the author knows he's been. He's going to be released soon. So he says, "We're coming to see you, and we're going to come visit soon." In the verse 24, greet all of your leaders and all the saints. And these are words of greetings. He's written about the leaders and how they're to interact with their leaders. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. He's just said that, in the previous chapter, in the previous verses. And now he says, "Greet them." Greet them, and not only them, but, but greet all the saints. Maybe they're in that body, maybe in the, the whole town. Greet all the saints. This is, how, this is how the leaders of the church would write. This is how Paul would write. This is how Peter would say, hey, tell everyone, tell everyone there that, that, that we greet them. We send our greetings. He says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. And so uh, apparently those that are with him as he's writing are, are those who have come from Italy. So maybe the letter's going back to Rome. And he's saying, hey, the, your people that, that are with me, they send greetings. This is a warm relational dynamic here as as he's closing this letter. This is not a a detached, disconnected author writing to a church. He's connected. He's writing back to them and sending greetings. Then finally, verse 25, the final words, grace be with all of you. This exact same wording occurs twice in two of Paul's letters. It's a common benediction, but it is a great benediction for the letter of the Hebrews. It's a fitting close. Grace. Grace is what you need, not food to strengthen you. You need grace. That This one word, that this is quintessential to the Christian gospel and to every message ever given to the church. Grace. Grace is what's proclaimed to those who have come to the new covenant through the grace of Jesus Christ. So he says, grace, grace be with all of you. And that's the end. That's in the final words, the final benediction. Grace be with you all. And just says, the author of Hebrews praise that for his readers, my prayer as we finish this study in the book of Hebrews is that God's grace would be with us all. That, that God's grace would, would keep us, would keep you, would, would keep me would keep us from stumbling, would would keep us from abandoning Christ, from apostasy. We need God's grace to do that. So may God's grace do that in our lives negatively. May it keep us from these things. But also may it keep us positively holding fast to Jesus. May it keep us persevering until the end. It's God's grace that must keep us trusting, believing that Jesus is better. We need God's grace to do that. The message of Hebrews is, is Jesus is better. That, 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 that May that be the cry of our lives for, for, for the rest of our lives on earth. But if we want that to be the cry of our hearts for the rest of our earthly pilgrimage, we need God's grace. Jesus is better. That has been the emphasis of this letter over and over again. And it's a fitting way to end the sermon a, a call, brother, sister, hold fast to Jesus because he is better. Hold fast to Jesus because through him we have full and complete cleansing from sin. Hold fast to Jesus because in him we have a new and a better covenant. We have eternal redemption, forgiveness of sins through him. And so let us hold fast because Jesus is better. Let let me pray as I close. Father, thank you for this New Testament letter. Thank you for the months that we have been encouraged and challenged and warned through these 13 chapters. Thank you that we have come this far. I pray that the message of this book would not be lost on us as individuals, as a church. Would we, by your grace, continue to hold fast to Christ, persevering, looking forward to our promised eternal rest we give you thanks for the new covenant promises that are ours because of Jesus, our great high priest. We worship you, Jesus. To you be glory forever and ever. Amen. You are better. Help us believe. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with me as we close this morning with a song. There is no other so sure.